Welcome to episode number 67 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring cinematographer Brian Burgoyne of the new comedy Hello, My Name is Doris, starring Sally Field and Max Greenfield, which is now playing in theaters in limited release. We'll discuss Brian's work on this bittersweet comedy drama directed by Michael Showalter, known from Wet Hot American Summer, Brian's work in the rigorous program at the American Film Institute, how he collaborates with the director, and his overall process as a cinematographer on feature films. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And don't forget, you can also follow us on social media, at jogroad on Twitter, at jogroadproductions on Instagram. You can like our Facebook page, jogroadproductions, Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join cinematographer Brian Burgoyne as we discuss his work on the new film Hello, My Name is Doris, starring Sally Field and Max Greenfield, and directed by Michael Showalter. Both NYU went to AFI. Uh, is there anything that you learned from those programs that still sort of stays with you when you're on set now and when you're working? Yeah, I would say a lot of what I learned there. Um, you know, NYU, when I went there, it may be different now because it was a while ago, uh, didn't have a lot of cinematography-specific programs. It was just more of a geared around writer-directors, I would say. So I just got to shoot a lot of people's projects because there are only a few of us that wanted to perhaps become DPs. So I didn't get a ton of formal instruction. There were a few classes, but mainly it was just getting a chance to work with a lot of different people at, you know, mostly mostly relatively inexperienced people because we're all yeah. in That's school. interesting. They didn't have a lot of cinematography I think it, when I was there, they had maybe two courses, two semester-long courses, and mm-hmm. then... Um, Otherwise, you know, at the time we shot everything on 16 millimeters, so it was a lot of shooting film and yeah. seeing how it turned out and tr- trying again. Uh, but, you know, getting to work, I probably shot 40 or 50 short films at NYU, so getting to work with that many different people was great because I think that's like such a core element to, to being a DP is you have to learn how to interact and work with a, all sorts of different people because every yeah. director has their own way of doing things. So just in such a short period of time, dealing with so many different personality types as directors was really helpful. Uh, And I had a few professors that were just so in love with movies and so enthusiastic about them. And that, I think, has stuck with me. Um, And then as far as, you know, AFI is a much more formal, I went there for cinematography. Um, The master's degree program. Exactly, yeah. And... you're sort of divided into your specialty and you mainly take classes with those other 20-some cinematographers in your year. And you shoot films for other people, but you actually don't shoot as many. Like at NYU, I shot a couple shorts a month, it seemed like, for a couple years. At AFI, you do less projects for a longer period of time, a lot more prep. It's It's much more built around how a feature film is made, except that you're making a short, you prep it for a few months, you have meetings with the different department faculty and students like production design and editors and they sort of suggest things and ask you questions and then you make the film and then you do all that again kind of 
in retrospect, like, this is what we did. How do you think it worked? Yeah. This is a very different... Yeah, I was talking to somebody who went there, also a cinematographer, and he was mm-hmm. telling me that they had these sort of critique screenings with which, professors, yes, which that, was sort of very intense. Uh, that was the... I mean, of all the great things about AFI, those Friday night classes, when... I think he still does it, but when I was there, a guy named Bill Dill ran those, and he was just... He's very intense and very direct and doesn't kind of beat around the bush if he thinks you did something wrong or he doesn't like a choice you made he's very clear does about he sort that. of go through kind of director screenwriter editor production like all the different uh, no you know or... those classes although people from the other disciplines did come because he was such a, a interesting exciting professor and they would want to see what he had to say yeah there were very strict rules in the class it was strictly about the cinematography so he would sit next to you or stand over you more often and everyone would watch the film straight through, 12 or 15 minutes or whatever, and all the other students would write you a critique after that, and then he would play it again and pause it repeatedly and talk about shots and moments and decisions you made and lighting. and um, You weren't allowed to speak unless he asked you a direct question. There was no defending yourself. There was no but this, but that. His point is, like, when an audience sees your work, you're not going to be there to explain, like, well, but this is why that happened. Maybe yeah. it didn't work. And he would be pretty intense. Uh, it's rare that you sit and have someone just essentially occasionally praise you, but more often criticize you in front of a bunch of your peers for what seems like an eternity. It's really, you know, an hour. Um, but that really stuck with me in some of the things that he pointed out and he was just all about storytelling and any decision you made if it didn't further the story and if he detected some kind of selfishness in it or just style over substance he really would object to that and I try and approach every job I do now keeping that in mind like each little thing has to add up to then tell the story the best you can. So he thought maybe you were trying to be too fancy or trying to sort of show off in a way that wasn't really serving what the whole narrative was. He would object to that strongly. And, you know, that's... AFI is a very narrative cinematography program. Um, People come out of it and do commercials and music videos and all sorts of stuff, but the instruction is very geared toward storytelling and filmmaking. Um, So, yeah, he really just wanted you to focus on... You know, he'd say things like, did you read this script? Because I don't know what you were shooting it wasn't the script I read you know you're really not telling this story well he didn't specifically say that to me but that was an example of like something he would say if you were really just on your own island making your own movie Uh, what were some of these sort of uh, early you know for you kind of being able to read a script break it down and almost like kind of like pitch a director and say this is how I see the movie visually this is how I can help you tell the story Mm -hmm. were there any sort of early um, things you learned about how to do that in a way well, again, at I think a mix of be, shooting so many different things for so many different young directors when I was in, in college and then seeing how that worked out and seeing where sometimes I feel like I pushed them to do something that they may not have done on their own in a bad way or a good way. Um, you know, mixing that with, at AFI, we had a great course with Bill, which was essentially about how to do your first feature from prep to shooting to scheduling, to crewing, you know, at the time, how to deal with the lab, all that kind of stuff. And he talked a lot about interviewing, you know, these things that aren't necessarily, you don't think of as, like, cinematography, interviewing, crew management, uh, 
the whole other side of it that's yeah. not just purely creative. The practical side of it. Which is a huge yeah. side of it. You know, and the bigger the project, the more people are directly under you and you're responsible for, and the more people are over you that you're responsible to. This, this is kind of a digression, but, you know, it's a balance because I'm still trying to figure out, I, it's different every time in terms of <clears throat> when I go to meet with somebody about their film, Obviously, I've read the script. Maybe I've seen other movies they've made. It depends if they're a first-time director or if they've done a few things. Um, and you never know what they're thinking, or usually you don't. And it's a balance of, like, do I want to go in and just 100% pitch a really strong idea that might be completely opposed to what they're thinking? Do I want to try and feel them out and see what they're interested yeah. in? Um, I generally, you know... Ha- I'm not someone who tries to impose a really overt style on most projects I do. I really try and blend into the material and the performances and, and light from a naturalistic place and, and base the camera placement and the camera movement off of the blocking and the performances. So I think I go in and try and explain how I see the story, not just in visual terms, but from a, a, a character perspective and an arc and how would the visuals tie into that. But I guess I rarely want to do something that's so intense and stylized that it would be a big pitch. I always find in interviews I end up talking a lot more about the characters and what the film is about. Do you ever sort of say, like, these are movies as visual references I'm thinking of? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. And and if a filmmaker has made prior films, I definitely try and watch all their stuff and kind of get a sense for... You know, sometimes you'll watch a few films by a filmmaker and they're wildly different in terms of photography and you never know yeah. is that that just that they like to work with different TPs and really vary their style or are they trying to find a style or is it very project to project um, like for instance with um, Hello My Name is Doris I think there were things Mike because Michael had made a, an earlier movie called The Baxter and I think there were things he really liked about the look of that movie and the process and things he wished he had done differently yeah so, like, if I had just watched that movie and gone in and assumed, like, that's how he wants his movies to look, it would have been off base in a lot of ways, or at least for this project. Like, this film did not want to look like that film, and it was... Yeah. Some directors, like, you think Wes Anderson, all his movies are relatively very within the same ballpark. Certainly, yeah. 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 Um, in a very different way, I think... Um, You know, like David O. Russell, it's his films yeah. have are made like technically made in a very specific way with a lot of long takes and a lot of steady cam and shooting out the mag, so their look almost spins out from how he wants his set to go. You yeah. know, like I just want to roll the camera and work with the actors. And naturally, his movies look like that just based the, on it has how to, he wants like, to work. With, it, they have to be yeah. lit in a certain way because the camera so often will suddenly do a three sixty. Yeah, I was reading something like he moves the camera with a light. His DP like has like a some kind of china ball light and he kind of moves it around or something. Yeah, I don't know specifically, but almost you'd almost have to use some level of interactive lighting with that level of kind of off-the-cuff camera movement, but the performances in his films are universally so good that it it works, you know, but it's such a specific way to make a movie. So, you know, every director, I think, when you're interviewing, it's also a balance of, like, how do I think this person will want their set to work and how how can I enable the set to let they and the actors work together and and do their best work? Because sometimes, 
it's very possible as a DP to get in the way of a performance as well as to help let the audience in on it. You mean you know? like you're too consumed with sort of the aesthetic of how it looks without... Yeah, or too rigorous or yeah. like that we, you can't ever miss a mark and you know this... I think people are getting away from that intensely formal level of filmmaking for better or worse but yeah, I mean there's very different ways to approach the job and I think for Doris and Hello My Name is Doris in particular I think we were really trying to create a set where performances could happen and the first or second take if they were great was it you know and we would move on so we shot it a lot handheld we lit the film less hyper specifically and more just kind of naturalistic and lighting the room and lighting the space and letting people move and I in general try and work that way you know there's certain times when you need to be very specific and rigorous but I try to avoid it so do you try to avoid sort of developing shot lists for the director no you know I we I think we pretty thoroughly shot listed Doris but then when you have an actor like Sally Field who's just so phenomenally talented you know we would try and have the shot list but then block a scene and try and let our eyes be completely fresh and if she or we or someone had a better idea than what we had thought about sitting in an office weeks before, be open to it and do it and don't worry about throwing away the plan. And often it would end up being some mix of what we thought it would be and some new ideas. Um, But it wasn't a movie that needed... I think it's always important to plan out the transitions from scene to scene and certain moments you need to definitely think through just so you're not cutting constantly from like a medium shot of the actor to the next scene another medium shot of the actor you need to build in some some shape even if you're working pretty off the cuff just so that the editor has some options and isn't just using the same types of shots constantly Um, do you ever collaborate a lot with the production designers of the wardrobe just in terms of sort of developing a color palette or kind of understanding where they are Definitely. Uh, on this movie, it was it was hard because there are so many wardrobe changes. She wears, and the outfits are so wildly different and very patterned or, or fuzzy. You know, they're so prominent that there was no real way to take into account, like, what will Sally be wearing in this scene? Usually you can keep a, tabs on that a little bit better. I think she had, like, 70 wardrobe changes in this movie you know something <laughs> yeah I never felt like she wore the same thing twice she really didn't and yeah. often you know there are these montages where there'll be like eight different days in two minutes and she's got and the outfits are very thorough I mean it's like a skirt and different shoes and some patterned stockings and a jacket and a head thing so in this case they I didn't know a lot of what they were doing until day of there were, we talked there's a sequence at a concert that involves blacklight, so for that we did some testing because certain things react to blacklight more or less. Um, so we needed to pick out some things that would work. Um, but yeah, that was really the only wardrobe thing where we were we pretty specifically like shot camera tests, yeah. looked at it. Otherwise, Sally and, and Rebecca Gregg, who was the costume designer, did an amazing job, but it was so much decisions based out of the character and what Sally felt was the character and Rebecca felt was interesting and she would be into. Um, you know, and I, I did work with our production designer to some extent talking about colors. On a movie with this kind of budget, though, 
we were pretty much entirely on location. So you're not building sets. You don't necessarily have the ability to repaint every wall to be what you want. You have to sort of location scout, yeah. get, get the place that the production designer and the DP and the director think is the best. So you're pretty much working with what's there, not really modifying well, it too much? Well, no, I mean, or? they would modify. It, it, it all depends, you know, just like my ability to to light of space depends on, like, if we're there for days and days, like the the concert, I think we shot for yeah. one full day, so we actually did a pre-rig, we did a relatively big lighting plan because it wasn't actually a concert venue, it was kind of a raw space. But if you're in a location for like two hours, you're not gonna invest a ton of resources and repaint all the walls and, you know, so they did probably more work, for instance, at the office where she works. That space looked very different in the movie than it does in real life. Because yeah. we were there for a lot of shooting days and it's a lot of running time in the movie. Yeah. And also the, uh, the house as well. Oh, the house, they yeah. did an amazing job. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember at the end when she moves out. Yeah, when that, she's cleaning up It sort of plays and, in yeah. one sort of low-budget version of motion control where the camera moves from room to room and there's less and less stuff. Yeah. So they basically had to do that live, and it really showed <laughs> how much they had dressed that set, because we'd shoot one room, cut, yeah. they'd have to then take like 50% of the objects out of the room. Hmm. And it took an eternity, because there was so much stuff in there. Like, I wasn't there when they dressed the set, I just showed up and thought, oh, this looks amazing, there's a lot of objects in here, but what really showed how much work they put in was watching them try and rush to wrap it all out of the house so we could keep shooting because we were literally waiting yeah. for the set to get undressed <laughs> so we could shoot the next little piece. Yeah, the amount of uh, clutter in there since her character's a hoarder. I mean, it was just, you know, so and, much. But they did a great job yeah. with how specific it was because it wasn't just, like, a mess. Like, M Michael didn't want her to be a hoarder with, like, old food or, like, dead cats. It wasn't like a disgusting... It was mostly like sentimental more. items. Yeah, she was like, like a really extreme collector or something. So there would be like a bowl of like 30 travel size empty shampoo bottles and you know, in one corner there would just be tons of magazines and it was organized. It wasn't just like junk thrown everywhere. So it was chosen and then placed very particularly. And in that the was house. a real house. That was It was a real house. Club. I think it was like behind a church in Highland Park, and uh, yeah, it was for rent, and somehow we found it, and it, it was like... So you guys, did, was some of the movie shot in New York, or was... Very little. We really? shot okay. in Los Angeles for three weeks, and then we shot in New York for two days with cast, and then one day, me and a camera assistant kind of driving around and finding shots, exterior shots. Um, yeah. So no, it was, you know... The obvious New York stuff is like when they're outside and you see New York City, the Staten Island Ferry. Yeah. There's very little. Um, but it's interesting because there's been so much talks about, you know, New York is sort of cheaper to shoot in a way and so many kind of tax incentives. Uh, yeah. In LA it's kind of more expensive, or, but I don't know if that. Yeah, you know, I think it might have had to do. I don't honestly remember the exact reasons why we didn't shoot most of it in New York. It may have been that a lot of the cast were here. I, yeah. I mean, a lot of the actors that were in the movie are at the time and currently were on TV series, so it may have been that they were like, oh, I can come be in the movie for three days because yeah. I'm already in L.A. I, I would imagine it was something like that where it was easier to cast the film. 
Yeah, shoot on the gear. Um, I was curious, as far as like working very closely with a director, how important is it for you guys to be on the same page before you guys start shooting? So there's never sort of a, a massive, you know, kind of separation in terms of what your ideas are. Very, because I think that's you. You make a good point. Like, I think it's pretty important for to the rest of the crew and the cast. You don't have to be right all the time, or like a perfect genius and you know everything's been plotted out but you need to certainly be making the same movie and when there's a curveball or something comes up there needs to be that trust that like we have a good plan we've been working together like okay something just happened and now we need to change the plan it's going to be fine you know being on the same page and doing a lot of prep and getting ready just really helps because when the inevitable happens and things need to change that whole process of prep, because I didn't know Michael before we did this movie together, not only gets you ready to do the movie, but you sort of get to know each other and like personally and just general likes and dislikes and interests and you learn how to communicate because you're talking through an entire hundred page script. Um, So then in the pressure of production, you've gotten all that out of the way. So, you know, hopefully there's already some trust and some flexibility and then I think it's important for the director and DP to just project like a, a team mentality rather than a, every, every person for themselves. If it seems like the director and the cinematographer really are the ones who kind of set the tone and really keep everything moving in a way. Yeah, along, with, along with the AD, yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of actual production like on, on yeah. set, yeah, just... Because so much of it is logistics and, you know, the production designer and set decorators have done their work already, the set's ready, so what really happens is blocking and then lighting and shooting and then blocking and lighting and shooting again and again throughout the day. So it's really, you know, if the director and DP aren't on the same page and there's a lot of, like, butting heads or spiraling, it's very bad because... all the momentum kind of comes from them and the cast, you know. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, prep hopefully enables the director and DP to be in a place where they are on the same page and they're ready to move forward quickly. And, you know, there's a an opposition to that that, like, I always try and remember to be open-minded and keep my eyes open and look for things that I hadn't, that aren't premeditated. Because sometimes, like, nobody's perfect and how you preconceive of a movie, oftentimes, on set, on location, with a cast, really amazing things will occur and you have to, the thing that helps about having a good plan and working quickly is if you're on schedule, you can then take some time to explore something different and not just like, these are the 10 setups we listed, we have to shoot exactly that. you can be a little more open and go with the flow. And sometimes some of the best stuff, I mean, very often, some of the best stuff happens that way. Yeah, I think it's like the more projects you do, you probably realize that <clears throat> how much, you know, um, you can't plan everything. You really have to kind of be open to certain things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, the more I get to work with really great actors, the, I mean, Sally Field was so phenomenal to get to work with. I, I felt very lucky just to watch someone like her who's had so many different films under her belt and is 
it's interesting because she's obviously really gifted and just so vulnerable and open and committed, but she's also very prepared and had such an amazing understanding of the script and the chronology of the script, and, and she would have questions that were so smart, you know. Um, so just listening to her talk to Michael about stuff that had nothing necessarily to do with the photography of the movie was really great. Yeah. Um, so I was curious, too, about the project that you did at uh, Sundance, uh, mm-hmm. Other People. Oh, sure. Um, you talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. That's, um, it's another movie like Doris that I think rides an interesting line between comedy and drama and tragedy and it's probably darker on the whole um, and sadder than Hello, My Name is Doris, but it exists on that same continuum of comedy, tragedy, you know, blending together, which are my favorite type of movies by far. Um, yeah, it's so rare now to see sort of the blending of those. You know, it and seems I, like in the 80s yeah. and 70s it was more common, but now it's either it's like a comedy or it's a drama. And, yeah, you know, and I think that probably has a lot to do with the marketing and sale of movies, because um, I think most directors and most actors and most cinematographers would prefer <coughs> movies where you get to be funny and sad and happy and, you know, the whole gamut. Because, um, like, nobody's... Uh, your life doesn't exist in one particular genre or, you know, yeah. human experience kind of goes back and forth. And it, to me, it's great to be able to do projects like that and I think both films had great casts because I think actors look for material like that where you're it's not just kind of the same muscle being worked you know you get to do different things but the writing's strong enough that it feels like a, a whole not a, a chopped up yeah. mess of emotion but so other people is um, very autobiographical story written by a guy named Chris Kelly who currently writes at Saturday Night Live um, about something he went through with his mother getting diagnosed with cancer and eventually passing away and he had been living in New York um, trying to, it was a while ago so he was still kind of trying to break into comedy writing and he went home and ended up living with his family again for about a year while she went through chemo and it ultimately didn't work and she stopped treatment um, but it's at times an incredibly funny movie although at times an incredibly sad movie. Um, Jesse Clemens plays the main character and Molly Shannon plays her, his mother and they were so good together. And uh, I'm excited for people to see that film too. I think it's yeah. gonna get released in and the I fall. love Molly Shannon, so I'm glad to hear about kind of a very meaty role that she can have. And she, yeah. she's so great and I think that's why she was attracted to it. And People will probably be very surprised how she's very funny in the movie and and Chris cast her because he said she did kind of more than anyone else remind him of his mother who he said was a very funny person and through really hard times he said often like in the worst situation sometimes something very funny would happen but she also is so moving I mean just watching her character kind of get sicker and and almost like disappear on screen she's just great in the movie yeah um i was curious too about sort of sometimes you know you walk into a room whether doing a movie or a tv show or anything and do you sort of try to think how do i light the scene in a way or you know how do i how do i approach this is is it just dependent on the project or the scene or 
I guess how do you mean like walk into a room? Meaning like on the on yeah like say, on the Tuesday day. I show yeah, up. Yeah, sort of like do you kind of like for example in a room where there's lights already there, mm-hmm. you sort of say, well, let's start from scratch. Let's turn off all the lights and let's figure out a way to you know see how we can make the room look. You know, usually Is there sort of like a strategy or yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of it is like more than halfway predetermined in prep in that I've got by the end of a few, you know, I do three or four weeks of prep on a, on a movie of the scale of Doris. Um, and at, by the end of that, I have a pretty good idea of what I want the movie to like, like look like generally. And I also have an idea of the kind of resources I'll be able to bring to bear, you know, size of crew, type of lighting equipment that I can afford, what, you know, how many cameras. And then, you know, toward the end of prep, you go and do tech scouts with your gaffer and your key grip, your kind of key crew members. And on the scout, we make pretty specific decisions about, you know, okay, in two weeks on a Wednesday when we're here at this um, office space for these day scenes, I think for these three scenes that are in the front where they're talking to the receptionist, let's push some light in from the window and do this and that. Because by the time you show up to work, people have already parked a generator where you need it and put trucks and maybe started unloading equipment. So they all need to know ahead of time, there's going to be a bunch of big lights on this street, so we need power there. Locations needs to get permission for this and that, and can we put a light on that roof? So a lot of the bigger decisions you need to make ahead of time to be able to do them. You know, Otherwise, you wouldn't have permission or you wouldn't have put the generator in the right place, that kind of stuff. So I try and work with my gaffer and key grip to make those decisions to put us in a position to work quickly but have flexibility. Like if a director and a cast want to do something very different and can we shoot this other direction, I, it's not always possible, you know, but I try and set things up so that there is some amount of flexibility and it's not such a rigid, specific plan. Yeah. Um, it, that gets trickier with like night scenes where you might need to use a lighting crane or something. Just deciding all of a sudden, let's move that two blocks is like yeah. <laughs> a thing. It takes some time. And you, know. uh, so you said you started on film, and now I'm sure most of the movies you're working on are digital. Yes. Are there any digital cameras that you prefer over others? Is there any? Sure. Uh, you know, I pretty much shoot everything these days on cameras that Arri makes, which they were, a, you know, made film cameras for. 80 years, um, 90 years before they started making digital cameras. Uh, and their cameras just, to me, look the best. Um, there are other manufacturers who have like higher resolution or more pixels or these kind of things, but I, I prefer the look that comes out of the ARRI cameras generally for most projects. Um, and they're very quick and easy to work with and very reliable and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I've heard a lot of people talk about the Alexa over the red and mm-hmm. some others. Um, I don't know, does the red, have you used the red at all? Or? Quite a bit, although not in a while. Um, the original red came, I think, did really good things for digital in that it showed up and it was kind of out of left field in that it was from people who had never made cameras before. And at the time it was quite good and it was sort of affordable. And I feel like it really pushed other camera manufacturers to up their game and it pushed digital cinema to a place, like there was a period of time when HD first showed up where it was just a miserable thing. Like if you found out you had to shoot a project on HD, it was just sad because it couldn't look good. It was like just not. Was it just the resolution was It off was very high contrast. A, uh, it, it, it wasn't even, 
it was lower resolution than say the Alexa or certainly the Red, um, but it's not even resolution. It was just very harsh and very unnatural. It just looked like video in in a bad way. You know, yeah. if you went outside and it was sunny, the shadows would turn black and the bright sun would just blow out light. You know, the camera couldn't handle it. And there's no way to even modify that in a way that was... You could, but by the time you modified it into the range the camera could handle, it was bland and unnatural and overlit. There were, you just couldn't win, you know? And, yeah. and people did great work on those cameras, but typically the stuff that I see now that I still appreciate that was from the early HD days is stuff that was intentionally very harsh in video like 28 days later or you know yeah, where, where they just the embraced it, it and went yeah. with it and like beat it up even more um so when the red came along it looked pretty good like you could shoot it and it wasn't so frustrating and sad to you know i stopped thinking every shot i wish this was on film and at this point i'm very happy shooting digital cinema you know the alexa or the uh, amira or the mini um, make great images and they're different than film they're not identical but there's some things that they do that film just couldn't you know um, particularly shooting very low light levels at night um, they pick up details that like are beyond what your eye can see do they get any any noise digital noise when you do that you know the ARRI cameras have a little bit of kind of patterny noise that I like it has a little bit of texture it's not perfectly pristine but they don't have video noise in like a in the sense some people might have of like earlier generation video cameras that were just all grainy you can make them do that if you want to but the noise they have is pretty pretty nice these days yeah. Do you ever use uh, DSLR cameras? Or you know, or? again, they there was a time when I was doing lower budget stuff, and they were such a better option for a second camera um, than some more traditional like video handycams. They have a lot of downsides in terms of like being production friendly, how to monitor them and do audio and, and um, keep them in focus and all that kind of stuff. But again, they were sort of a tool that I think came at a nice time and was useful to a lot of people in their career just to have something that was cheap and looked pretty good. They're not, they've sort of uh, been left behind in terms of um, being used as a primary camera for making a movie or a TV show at this yeah. point. Because like Canon came out with the C300, which is kind of like a video camera version of a DSLR that's a lot easier to use. For. Yeah, and it can do so much more, and it has just so many more options to put onto the camera. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and just the batteries last longer, and, and there's ports to run video that are more durable and work well. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I think they were... Because they kind of came... My, my memory is not perfect in terms of chronology, but I feel like they came right around the same time as the Red One, and it was like a bunch of different options that were a little more interesting than the older like consumer video cameras or HD cameras. Yeah, um, and I was just curious, I remember you mentioned uh, you're doing, you might do another movie with Michael uh, Showalter. Yeah, we are doing a movie uh, in, in a month or so uh, in New York called Big Sick. Um, which was written by Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, Emily Gordon, and really funny movie that I'm 
very excited to do, and uh, it'll be great to get to work with Michael again and kind of take advantage of the relationship we built over the making of Doris. Um, it's nice, our preliminary conversations about this movie. Now that we've already done a film together, there's such a kind of database of likes and dislikes and um, understanding between us that I feel like it's so much easier to just get going, you know? Yeah, and having that uh, established language going in. Yeah, and trust, and like we, I think we, are both very happy with Hello, My Name is Doris and how it turned out, but I, I know I also just had a great time making it, and I think it's nice to know that that the relationship's there and that it's like a fun experience, in addition to being, you know, a good working relationship. He's a very funny guy, so it's pretty great to get to work with him. Yeah, did he work on uh, Wet Hot American Summer? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, he, the writers. he, I think, was the head writer on the Netflix show, and... I don't remember if he co-wrote it or was the the primary writer of the movie, um, and also he's in them. Yeah, I was reading also. I think he teaches at NYU now. He did. Right? Okay. I, he doesn't anymore. He moved out to Los Angeles like right around when we started shooting Doris. Um, but for a while, he was a um, professor at, or I, th- I think he was adjunct faculty. I don't think he was a full professor uh, at NYU's grad um, film program, which is where he met. Laura Turusso, who made a short, which is sort of about the character Doris, although how she is in the short is very different from how she ended up being in the movie, because they, uh, he liked her short, and they ended up collaborating and and building it into a feature film. And maybe the core of the character is the same, but they really built the character out, and then built a whole plot. Oh, so the narrative that was in the short really isn't the narrative. If I remember correctly, in the short, she has a crush on an office intern who's like 20. He's even younger. (laughs) And there's these sort of fantasies and stuff, but um, it's only like a seven-minute long short. So much of, you know, the plot is greatly expanded in, in the feature version. 